Hello and welcome back to Resilient Entrepreneurs. This is the podcast that features business owners from around the world, from all walks of life, sharing their expertise and tales of their resilient journey. Carl Schwantz is a leader in the jewelry world. His mission is to keep the industry alive and vibrant, to empower people to invest in jewelry that is divinely unique and to make a difference in people's lives. He's described by those who know him as a diamond surgeon. What Carl knows about diamonds could fill a book or three, but I'm pretty sure Carl is deeply romantic as well. And I, for one, will be asking him how he helps a woman or a couple find that perfect ring. Carl's calling to help people has also led him to start another business, Five Star Reviews, helping businesses grow through exactly that, getting great reviews. Carl, welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs Podcast. Good morning, Vicky. Uh, I guess it's still morning, uh, wherever we are. We're all in the same state at the moment, so that's great. Well, two of us are, but uh, yeah, <laughs> and then we have Laura in Bermuda and listeners from all over the planet, which is always exciting. So Carl, you began your journey as a jewelry designer at the age of 12, having worked, and I say worked in inverted commas, because there was no slave labor involved, I'm sure, with your family business since you were eight years old, sweeping yeah. floors and the like. Yeah, there was no uh, there was no slave labor, just child and free labor. So that that's just that's probably slightly better than slave labor. Do we think so? Well, as long as you keep it in the family, it's better, right? I'm sure it goes on still. And uh, look, after some journey of exploring options for yourself, you later took over the family business right here in Brisbane. What is most memorable to you about those early days? It's funny, like anyone who's uh, who's from the jewelry industry knows that most jewelers have uh, maybe a shop or something like that, but they generally have a home workshop as well. And, you know, even as a small child, I can still remember walking in many times into my father's workshop and you know, smelling the oils and the, 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 the unique smells that come from a workshop and watching him heat up these bars of metal, like, you know, where they would turn cherry hot red and then quenching it into the water. You know, it was really kind of something magical. It almost felt like the old days of King Arthur and the knight's table and, and fashioning swords. So I think at some level, there was a really a magical attraction to turning this lump of metal into something that was really going to end up so beautiful. Yeah, that, oh, I can, <laughs> I can imagine as a kid how in, that would affect your trying to figure out what you wanted to do. So when you were little, did you think you would end up in this family business or did you have a totally different plan in mind? I don't think I really knew. Like, I mean, for, for the listeners listening today, I, I, it's almost hard to comprehend. But back when we were kids, computers and the internet weren't really that much of a thing. So you know, it's such a different mindset now. We didn't really know what we wanted to do. Um, at that time, as I was getting later into high school, it was computers. Like that's what I thought was going to be the next big thing. And for one reason or another, it didn't it just didn't work out that way. Uh, I actually, after school, left and did a science degree majoring in psychology. Not that that has anything to do with sales or anything like that, but I just had a I just had a an interest in the psychology side of things. And there's you know it's really quite fascinating when you look at neurosurgeons and and neuropsychology and and all that sort of thing. So I always found that quite fascinating as well. But no, I just I, I loved helping out. 
And when I say loved helping out, I think there are things like with any family business, when you're growing up, uh, there are probably parts of the job that you like and probably parts that you didn't. We used to have to do these mail outs in the old days, which was folding thousands of letters, putting stamps and lick sealing envelopes and all that, that sort of thing to kind of let you know, to interact with your clients from a marketing point of view. But I think when you're around it and exposed to it and it's, you talk about it at the dinner table, it just becomes part of your DNA and, and who you are. So I think it's at some level, I guess I was always going to do something in the space, but I didn't. it wasn't clear to me at that time when I was younger what that looked like. And it was only later on uh, in the later years where I went on to do my gemology diploma, my, so I became a qualified gemologist, then a qualified diamond grader, and then a valuer, and you start to do all of this. And it, and it's just the power compounding of time. I think for all kids, so I've got four kids now. So triplets, 17-year-olds, and an 18-year-old. And I think as a parent, what you want for your kids is actually for them to do something that they just good at. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of self-confidence that comes when you just do something that you're good at. And for me, jewelry was, that was it in terms of talking to clients, or it could have been designing something. Uh, it's something I just love to do. And and the clients that I did it for really appreciated what I, what I brought for them. Yeah. I imagine a psychology degree would give you a special kind of insight into the people that come in and, and sit down with you and want to make a really big decision in life. Because often you'll get grooms-to-be coming to buy that big, important ring, right? For for who they want to propose to. So I think that might be a little bit of a superpower you have to have yeah. the psychology <laughs> understanding of all that. Yeah, I think like at some level it maybe helps, but I think for me naturally, I'm just one of those people that just loves people. I love talking with people. I love interacting with people. I love helping people. So for me, I think that's probably just a function of who I am and how and how I always was. Uh, as a child growing up. So, you know, I was on the school debating team, public speaking, uh, and I just really enjoyed all of that side of things. So, uh, but at it, its central core, it really comes into helping people. And I think that um, from a service point of view, whether you're a jeweler, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a, uh, an accountant, if at your core being, you have this desire to help people, I think it bodes very well for whatever you do in business. It really does. And I'd love to take that conversation a little further, um, a little later in this episode, because a lot of people feel like sales and marketing is about convincing someone to buy our stuff. And I think the three of us in this room know that is the exact opposite of the approach that is best taken. But before we get there, Carl, um, I've heard you share how you help um, a woman or a couple find that perfect ring. Mm. Can you walk us through that process? How do you do that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a really funny process. It's a, it's a little bit of style. It's a little bit of. I mean, you can see actually, I've got dressed for you ladies today. I'm wearing my three piece suit with the pink shirt and and everything. So for me, it's a little bit of style. It's a little bit of creativity. I've always had that kind of creative flair, and I think it also at its gen like. At its base level, people want to feel special and they want something that's a little unique. They don't want a, a cookie cutter, you know, you're one of 10,000. No, no lady who's being proposed to wants to hear, here's a ring that's the same as 10 million other rings. I'm a unique person, you're a unique person, and we want something that's a little bit unique, something that's ours that we can call a special, you know, part of the design. So, so for me, I think some of it comes from having that creative flair. And I love drawing and designing. I think my one of my superpowers in the jewelry world is I can draw any ring that you can imagine in 3D in under 60 seconds. 
So it's just, I almost just see it in my mind and I'm almost just tracing the lines. Uh, so I really love doing that. And I love the penny drop moment when the, you know, if you've ever had one of those caricatures where someone's drawing you and you go, don't see it, I don't see it. And then you go, oh my God, now I see it. And it's kind of like that with designing jewelry for me. It's like sometimes people in the beginning, they don't see it, they don't see it. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, I can see that. And I love that feeling when the penny drop happens. And and then, and then I'm sitting there going, well, do you want to have a color in there? Like maybe a pink diamond or or something like that as a feature in the side. And clients just love that. Or it could be something around having some special engraving. I mean, I've got so many stories of clients that just wanted something quirky. Like one of my clients uh, loved uh, pink and purple polka dots. It was just a thing. Everything she had socks with pink and purple polka dots. She had a tattoo with that on it. Like everything that she did was pink and purple polka dots. Anyway, so I designed a ring. And on one side, I put like an amethyst on the other side of pink sapphire. And that was her pink and purple polka dots. And it was about taking some of her essence and some of the stuff that was really special to her and showing her how to incorporate that into her engagement ring. So I always try to make it a little bit unique, a little bit for them, but it, and it's always for them. It's it's never for anyone else. And I always think that it's it's such a jewelry, such a personal thing, and it should be for you. It should give you joy when you look at it. I sometimes say that if a picture tells a thousand words, then your jewelry is like a lifetime of novels and stories. And so what I want people to do is to look at their jewelry and remember uh, what it symbolizes. So. You know, if I'm with some some ladies and they're looking at doing some remodeling or, or some vision creating is I might say to them, look, um, Vicky, when you get to your, you know, 1000th client, let's just say, uh, I want you to reward yourself with a nice set of diamond stud earrings. And what happens is that every day you look in the mirror, you see those earrings and you're reminded of the accomplishments and the goals that you created and that you achieved. And you feel a tremendous sense of reward and accomplishment for it. So it tells that story of everything that, that you do. So I, that's the way I look at jewelry. And I try to create those stories uh, for my clients, whether it's the lady, because she's, you know, a power woman in the in the real estate scene, or whether it's a, a couple, you know, looking to to get engaged. That's what I love to do. I love to create those special special memories that's locked up in jewelry. I love yes. that. And speaking of stories, Carl, you've written a book called rock her world yeah yep it was the ultimate guide to choosing the perfect engagement ring it actually won an international book award for the best how-to book so of all my kind of business type achievements that one's actually probably the one i'm most proud of so and i've got probably about another two or three books in me that i want to write so that was the first one um the second one that i'm working on is is so the first one i kind of wrote for the guys and the second one that i'm writing is for the ladies on how to plan the perfect wedding. And it's again, it's it's me connecting with so many other bridal professionals. Uh, and I go, well, wouldn't it be really cool? It's almost like a what to expect when you're expecting book. You know, for those ladies that have ever gotten pregnant and looked at that book, I want to create something like this wedding Bible where it's all the questions you didn't know you needed to ask. Like, for example, um, if you have a wedding videographer, uh, does your wedding videographer have a backup battery on him at all times? Now, the reason I know to ask that question is that the videographer that was filming my wedding, uh, his battery died as my wife was walking down the aisle. No. So, yeah. Oh. So, 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 but like, I didn't know that I needed to ask that question, right? Like, so, so that's what the book will be based around is me just interviewing all of these other amazing professionals and extracting all of that sort of stuff from them. I'm begging to ask, did he stop the wedding and ask for a reshoot? <laughs> <laughs> 
how we you had just to lost the moment. Just well, we kind of didn't, didn't like we just had basically there were everyone else in those days had the camera down the aisle, yeah. and but or the video camera, and we were able to kind of splice that in. It wasn't the same sort of quality, but it was better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic idea for a book. I love that. And uh, having been through a wedding, I think I would have appreciated that book. <laughs> there was a lot of things that after the fact I said, oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. <laughs> yep. But you know what? You get married for all those special memories and all the, the life that you lay out ahead of you. So if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. But you always Doesn't do want it to be, don't you? As good as possible, yes. Yeah. Wonderful. And do you also have a book in you about Google reviews? Yeah. So I'm kind of working, I'm about 20,000 words into that book. And it's really all about just getting people to understand that the way that we market today is so different. Everything evolves over time. If you are old enough to remember and you're from Australia, you probably remember that we used to have the yellow pages. And, you know, they, they had this ad where this lady was running down the street and someone yelled out, not happy, Jan, and <laughs> because they missed the Yellow Pages cutoff date. And I used to hate it when the Yellow Pages would come because every year they'd put the prices up and they, they would say to me, look, it doesn't matter if you don't advertise or you do, uh, you'll lose your spot and we'll give it to one of your competitors. And so they really had a monopoly on it, which was terrible. Uh, but it was such high effort and work yet to prepare all the content and and the ads and all that sort of stuff. So it was really not a very pleasant experience. From there, we moved into the digital age, which was all about uh, links and tracking and impressions and click-throughs. The problem now is we've come into an era where everybody's just become so manipulative around like that kind of digital marketing that there's, there's so much clickbaity stuff out there where people clicking on links, thinking it's one thing and just finding that they're being you know, funneled into some sort of sales page or whatever. So people naturally have become more and more skeptical. Like, for example, if you go to Google right now and you type in Dentist Brisbane, at the very top, you get the ads. Then below that, you get your Google um, map section where you've got the Google reviews. And then below that, you have the organic listing. Whenever I speak at an event, I ask people, how many people click on the ads at the top? And almost nobody does. Okay? Yeah. Okay, because we've just become cynical or suspicious about you're just paying for my attention. You don't necessarily know that you can solve my problem. You're just paying to be there. So we've moved from the, what I call then the digital age, which is into the reputation age, which is all about reputation marketing. People are more time poor today than they ever have been. And we, we become impatient. In the old days, you might shortlist a business to three or four businesses and go and interview them and see them. And or, now we just want to go, who's the best on Google? That's where I'm going to go. And provided they do a good job of it, when I meet them, I'm unlikely to go somewhere else. And I and I just find it time and time again, because I ask all of my clients, like, why did you choose us? How did you find us? And they just say to me, look, we looked you up to you on Google. I mean, at the moment, Xenox Diamonds has over 1,047 five-star Google reviews. And people just say to me, you had the most amount of reviews on Google and we weren't going anywhere else. So when a client comes to me and they say Google reviews is the reason that they found me, they generally make a decision faster. They generally spend more and they don't care about the competition. And I thought, isn't that really interesting? Like, wouldn't other business owners really love to know how to do that? Like, what if you could generate one to three warm leads every single week for your business without spending a dollar on ads? 
I mean, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg and, and you know, some of those other big companies have enough money of, of our money. They don't need any more. So I'd rather get my clients to not spend money on those until at least they've optimized their Google reviews, their Google business profile and those sort of things. So for anyone who doesn't understand what a Google review is or how one gets one, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So Google reviews, Google is the predominant platform by far. It's like, it's something like 95% of all searches online are done on Google. And Google right at this point in time can't, well, that we know of, uh, is not listening to everything that we're saying, although they probably are. And um, in order for Google to understand how to tailor the algorithm to help us find what we want, they need users like you and I to give Google the data. And the way that we do that is in the form of a Google review. Well, one of the ways that we do that is in the form of a Google review. It's me saying, I'm like a little ant and I've just bumped into this restaurant over here and I said, it's great. You should try the steaks uh, and the cocktails. So all of those things are keywords that Google's looking out for. So when someone types into best steaks, Brisbane, the fact that I've written that in the reviews pushes that listing up the rankings. So it, the Google reviews accounts for about 16% of your local search engine optimization, which basically just means eyeballs. It's Google's eyeballs on your business, on your website, uh, which means more bookings and inquiries coming through to you. And 36% of your local SEO is from your Google business profile. Here's the funny thing. Google created this amazing tool in Google reviews and Google business profile, uh, but they expect you to Google how to use it. <laughs> exactly. That's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess for me, what, what I'm on a mission to do is to help, you know, 100 business owners generate over 100 Google reviews for their business. Uh, because I know that once you hit that 100 review milestone, uh, people start to naturally, organically generate new clients without spending any money on ads. And I, I get messages all the time. I love it. You know, people saying to me, you know, we got X number of dollars from our Google review clients, or um, I actually have my phone linked to their Google profile. So I get pinged every time they get a five-star Google review. And I get excited like it's my own, but it's not. It's my clients. But uh, But it's just seeing these things just kind of ding, ding, ding come through. And it's just, it's so transformative to a business to know that your clients, you're winning new clients from your old clients. It, it's just, you're getting people that are coming in because uh, they've found you through the Google reviews and they've read your reviews. Average person reads between five and seven Google reviews. And you have to have a reputation score above four, anything below four and people unlikely to use you. A single one-star review can cause two out of 10 people to not use you. And 62% of people actively look at people's profiles to find the one-star reviews because they want to see what the worst case scenario is if they deal with you. So people want buyer safety. And it's, and it's true essence, that's what it is. I, I want to know that if I come to you, that you're going to look after me, that you're going to do a great job. If there is an issue, you're going to support me and help me, not just tell me to kind of get stuffed kind of thing, you know? So there are so many aspects of that. And there's so much research out there about the value and the benefit of reviews. And it it's just amazing that at this point in time, there's still so many people not touching it. And so the bar to being exceptional on Google is still very low. So it's not too late to start going out there and focusing on building your Google portfolio. I sometimes say, it's like, imagine if I said to you, Laura, I'm going to give you a digital marketing assistant for your business. Um, they're going to work 24-7, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. 
Um, you never have to pay them a wage, uh, no taxes, no superannuation. They'll never take a sick day or holidays and they're going to get better every single year. Would you like a digital marketing assistant like that? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what your Google reviews will do for you if you adopt this strategy. The sad thing is, is that in the beginning, most people's conversion ratio is so low. Like they ask 20 people and they're lucky to get one. And so they get frustrated. It's one of those things. It's simple, just not easy. It's, like, it's simple. You just get Google reviews. It's just not easy. There are some, some significant things that you need to do along the client journey experience to make sure that when you come to ask for the client, uh, for the review that you get it. So my, my goal with the clients that I work with is I want to get them up to a five out of 10. So if you ask 10 people, you get five Google reviews. So that's the benchmark goal. And if you're not achieving that, then the issue is you probably need a better system around how you collect, transform, and get those reviews from your clients. Well, Carl, no, no doubt that is a part of your program and the service that you offer to your clients. Are you willing to reveal, say, the top three must-dos on this okay. episode? Of course. I would be just too mean. I would be just too mean if I left you all hanging like that. <laughs> I was thinking uh, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so like the, the, the one big one is just to ask everybody. It, it's it's like so many times uh clients that I talk to just selectively filter who they're gonna ask. Oh, maybe that person wouldn't give us a review, so I won't ask. Or this person's busy. So I won't ask them, whatever that is. There's a million and one reasons why people come up as to why they don't do it. So the simple thing is just ask everybody. The second thing is you have to understand that if you're just giving your clients what they pay for, that's not exceptional. If I go into a restaurant and I order a steak and they deliver a steak, that's nothing exceptional about that. I paid for a steak and you gave me one. You have to find ways that go above and beyond what the client's expecting in order to become exceptional. And when you do that, it makes it very easy to get an exceptional review. Basic service gives you basic to no reviews. You know, exceptional service gives you exceptional reviews. So making sure that you're constantly looking to up-level the client experience. Now, I've got millions of stories that I could tell you about where it's just been completely average and somewhere it's been amazing. Um, so that's the first thing. So the first one was ask everybody, Second one was to look to um, offer exceptional experiences with your clients, like up-level that. Uh, and to a large part, that's also training the team. So you got to be training people because you think that uh, just because I tell my team how to do it once, that they'll just do it automatically every time after that. Nope. Reality is everybody needs constant training in this space. Uh, and the third one is you just need to make it easy. So many times people make it difficult. Sending a email with a link to a Google review is the worst way to do it, but it's the way that most people do it. And as you think about it, like an email has an open rate of 20 to 30% over three days, whereas an SMS has a 90% open rate within 90 seconds. So you need to find ways to make it frictionless for people to leave a review for you. So there you go. There's three tips for you. Those are good tips. And it's no different than just having a culture of excellence, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, even whether you're doing, you know, the five-star Google reviews or you're doing asking for testimonials or asking to put on your website, which is another thing we often recommend people do in marketing because people trust other people's 
word, right? But yeah. Um, yeah, so it's about that excellence. Excellence in customer service is key to anybody listening. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes say like the ultimate goal standard for me is um, is having service or, or being of service as one of your highest core values without judgment. And the without judgment is the hard part because we all do it. You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but we all do. You know, this this person, oh, that that annoying client, oh, he was a cranky client. Oh, maybe maybe something really bad happened in his life and that morning or, or whatever. Maybe he got into a car accident or whatever. You know, so so being of service without judgment is the hard part. But when you can achieve that, you'll always go that extra mile for somebody because you're wanting to help them in every way without holding anything back. Yeah, and this brings us back around to what you were saying earlier in that your kind of reason for being is to help people, is to, yeah, just always get them to that next step. And I I think that's a fundamental principle of good marketing. Would you agree? Yeah. For me, me, it's like I've, I've been in business for more than two decades. I know what it's like to be in the trenches. I know what it's like to kind of go, well, I wonder where the next client's coming from. I know what it's like to kind of have to spend a significant amount of your I guess, available funds on ads and platforms and all that sort of stuff. And so I really empathize with business owners out there because it was once told to me that being in business is like a walk in the park, uh, Jurassic Park. It's definitely not for the faint hearted because uh, it was easy. Everybody would do it, right? So I, I totally get that. And it's like that. And that's why when I look at this kind of form of reputation marketing, it's just for us at Xenox, you know, for every dollar we spend on our reputation marketing, it returns $326 back. I'm yet to find anything that has that degree of uh, ROI. And so I want to help other business owners do that. Like you're amazing at what you do. You're just not capturing that and you're just letting it go. It's like that old sort of saying, where do you hide a dead body? And the answer is on the second page of Google, because nobody's looking there. Okay. And you, why do you want to be the best kept secret on the internet? Like you are amazing at what you do. You've just got to let more people know that. And one of the best ways to do that is through your Google reviews. Because it sounds like the Google review is the bridge. You're saying that nobody clicks on the ad. So that's not going to work for you. But if you don't do something special, you're going to end up on page two. So the Google review is that bridge that says, well, we're not really relying on the ranking as much. But then I do imagine that having more five-star reviews gets you onto page one. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. There's definitely... So I often talk about the difference between front-end SEO and back-end SEO. Front-end SEO is all the stuff that I teach, which is around your local SEO, optimizing your Google profile, Uh, getting your Google reviews, getting keywords ranking in your Google reviews, all of that sort of stuff. Backend SEO is all things like backlinks, on-page optimization, uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, Problem with the backend SEO, it's still really important to do, and the two work really well together. And so I'm always a big advocate that you should do both. But you could spend two and a half grand thereabouts a month with an SEO company for six to eight months and barely see any results. Like it takes a while from an SEO point of view for them to move the needle. With the front end SEO, like a lot of clients can see results after four or six weeks. And it's something that they can do individually themselves once they know how. So that's why I gravitate towards that. You know, you see results faster. They can do it themselves. Um, And that's the other thing with ads, right? Like the second you stop spending money on Facebook ads, the leads will stop. 
But with your Google reviews and having that there, uh, it's there for the rest, it's there forever. So, you know, it keeps working even if you're not spending money on it. Yeah. Interesting. SEO seems to be something that a lot of people get very confused about in marketing. You know, they build a website and then great, I've got my website. Now I'm going to focus on social media channels. Now I'm going to focus on other marketing. And they just don't deal with that connection to Google, which is where the SEO part is so important. So it's, I think it's a really sticking point for a lot of people, especially startups, young entrepreneurs, solo entrepreneurs, hobbyists that have built something. And why is nobody coming? Why is nobody, why is it so slow? Everything is just trickling. And, and I think a lot of people give up at that stage. As we know, a lot of entrepreneurs drop out of entrepreneurship within the first year because of those exact struggles. But struggle is part of entrepreneurship, like you said. So tell us, I mean, have you had any major entrepreneurship struggles in your career or any moments you've been ready to quit and go become a psychologist or something? No, Laura, every day is just roses. And <laughs> I, I, I was just born out of the womb. Like I call a, BS. I call BS. Absolute <laughs> entrepreneur rock star. Now, of course, everybody does. You know, and, and even like for me, there's been many times looking at the Google stuff thinking, oh, geez, go, it'd be so much easier to just go back and, and just do the diamond stuff because I'm very good at doing that. But I think it's actually an interesting book I'm listening to at the moment by David Goggins. I don't know whether you've seen anything that he does. Oh, yeah. But, but one of the things that he was advocating just, I was just listening last night about it was, was really just taking that breath and just, it's still just about putting one foot in front of the other. And if you could just not quit this second and just not quit this second and, and all of those seconds just add up. And there's actually surprisingly so much in the psychology behind what he talks about, but yeah, no, absolutely. And I think sometimes you just need to make sure that you're, you're trying, not trying to, but that you're aware of, of what burnout looks like. And some people see burnout in very different ways. And and I know for me, uh, I used to hate referring to it as burnout because I saw that as really a kind of a sign of weakness to sort of say, well, I'm burnt out, but looking for different ways to recharge self-care, whether it's going for a massage, whether it's one of the things that I like to do is a friend of mine has a farm down near Northern Rivers and uh, we call it Bush TV. Uh, and, and Bush TV is basically just staring at the fire. There's no, like, this reception is terrible out there. But basically, we just sit there for, you know, a couple of hours and you're just looking at a fireplace. And uh, I think there's something quite therapeutic about that and, and making sure that you're surrounded by people that can help and support you through that, where you can just take a break for, from things for a while. Yeah, just to stop thinking about whether you're winning or losing, right? Just to yep. be away from it. Just leave it back there. For a moment. And it's incredible how much more clarity and how much more creativity comes forward in those silent times. I guess that's the power of meditation too. Do you have a morning routine that keeps your day starting well and ticking along? Uh, I'm one of those lucky people. Like I, I'm a morning person. So I generally wake up somewhere between 4 and 4.30 in the morning and I, I can jump out of bed what? with two feet. So, but, yeah, yeah. But, You're but, kidding but, me. By about 9.30, I'm one of those energizer bunnies where the, where the batteries is running down. It's like, oh. so, it's 9.30. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I uh, wonder if this I'm, was, were you in training when your triplets were young? <laughs> were you yeah, the one that always got up? And <laughs> No, no, no. My wife did the most amazing job with with, with that side of things. But um, I just think, yeah, I was always a morning person. So for me, uh, I never really needed anything in, in a mindset point of view to kind of start the day. 
But what I what I do love to do, and sometimes it doesn't happen in the morning, but usually it happens in, at nighttime is I do some breathing exercises. So like there's some coordinate circles and boxes and triangles. And I find that really, really can help as well. Yeah, I know that box breathing from yoga. Very, very, very helpful. Oh, I'm still kind of like, I can't get over the 4.30 in the morning thing. I just, I, I'm I wake dead up, to the world. I, I wake up every day without an alarm. I wake up be, well before any alarm. I've got it there just as a backdrop, but I wake up every day without the alarm, before the alarm. Mm. What, what does it give you? What is that early morning? It's still dark, That those moments, that time. What, what does that give you? What does that do for you? Uh, I don't know. This is when I'm just mentally alert and awake. So, you know, when I was writing the book, uh, I used to actually, and, and the hard thing was like, I wrote the book in 30 days. And one of the things that I did was just religiously sit down between 8.30 and 10.30 uh, and write every single day for 30 days. And uh, so after the, we'd put the kids to bed, brush their teeth, done all that sort of stuff, cleaned the kitchen, got lunches ready for the next day. The next time I would sit down and from 8.30 to 10.30, I would write. But I knew that come 10.30, the, the laptop went down and I was out. Sometimes I didn't make it to 10.30, uh, but it was always about writing between one and 2,000 words a night. And I just did that religiously for 30 days. So there was no TV, everything was unplugged. Uh, and that was part of a really powerful routine that just really helped me get the book done in, in a short period of time. I could have easily done it in the morning as well. But again, the kids at those stages were also a lot younger. So it makes it harder when you've got kids, that's for sure. Yeah. So are you a man of methodology? I, I think we all are creatures of habit. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think we're all creatures of habit. Um, some of the habits that we do are positive, some are not so positive. And I think there's real power in creating routines. So I try to create routines where I can. But one of the routines that we have in our house is that every Sunday we do a Sunday roast. It becomes tradition. It becomes routine. I think maybe at its core, I'm just kind of maybe lazy. It's just like, I don't want to have to keep thinking about it every week. If I can just diarize it and put it in there and make it a regular, then I just know the first Sunday is this, the second Sunday is that, whatever that is. Yeah. There, there's a lot of power in that. And a lot of really exceptional entrepreneurs speak to that and how they simplify their life through routine, whether it be wearing the same outfit every day or eating the same lunch every day so there's one less decision that needs to be made or like and I think there's so much power in that that we often forget and we want novelty and variety but yet that takes more brain power it takes more when we mm. can use that to build our businesses so yeah maybe we should all pay attention to our routines and habits a little bit more um what do you love most about being an entrepreneur what's what's the your favorite part I think for me, it's that whole creator side. It's really about being creative, testing, measuring, seeing what works, what doesn't, tinkering you know, under the hood and, and seeing what that works. And I think it's just one of those things that I've always had um, the ability to see things from a fresh perspective. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's a really valuable skill is to see things differently to everybody else. And I think that's just something that I've always innately had. And I, I guess I I've traveled and I've done such a wide variety of experiences from being at uni to spending 10 years in the military as an artillery captain to having triplets to all of these things. And I think you just get this like really broad degree of um, experiences that allows you to see things in different ways. And so I think when I'm with somebody, if I'm hot seating them or I'm trying to help them brainstorm about what they can do differently in their business, it comes from that creative place. And that's what just excites me. I could just do that all day long. 
And you're very good at it. We have experienced it firsthand, having uh, had you as a mentor in a business accelerator program that we were all part of, Dent, run by Glenn Carlson and Daniel Priestley, and we're big fans of their work, of course. And we really appreciated that creativity and kindness that you show as a mentor. So aside from the two businesses that you're running and everything else that happens in your life, you're also a mentor and giving back on that level. Yeah, yeah. And- I, 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 generally, I generally enjoy doing it. And again, for me, it's that whole light bulb. It's like when I'm helping somebody and, and then they go, oh my God, that's so cool. Like I could use that in my business. That is, I think when you're younger, you derive significance and, and fulfillment from different things as you get older. And I think, you know, when I was younger, the significance was all about chasing the sale, like ringing the bell, got the sale and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then I think when you get older, you kind of move into that that next chapter of your life where it's all about giving back and adding value and sharing your experience, you know, whether that's with an apprentice, whether it's with another business mentee that from that side of things and being able to share that, you know, and it becomes less about the money, more about uh, the impact that you can help create in, in different spaces. There's a concept called procession. Have, have you heard of procession? No, I'm not familiar with it. So the concept of procession is that like, if you think about the old story of the little bumblebee and the bee flies from like the hive to the flower, and it's just going backwards and forwards every day, backwards and forwards. But something else really interesting happens is that along the way to its journey backwards and forwards is it stops at other flowers. And what's happening when it does that? It's pollinating. Cross-pollinating, right? It's And it's this concept of the cross-pollination happens at 90 degrees to the bee's true purpose. And so when I talked about fresh perspectives, procession says that when I help somebody, something amazing may happen in that person's life that I may never know the full extent of. So like with us in in the Google space, I believe that as entrepreneurs, uh, we're here for three reasons. The first reason is that we're here to make money. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're not interested in that, then it's just not sustainable. With money that you can do more and better things for more people. But the second reason is, is that we're here because uh, we genuinely love delivering an ultimate result to our end user, our clients. You know, we love seeing, like, so for me, I love it when uh, I help clients crack the code and they start getting Google reviews or I help a client get a beautiful engagement ring. That's, that's the second part. The third part is I think that we're here to make a bigger impact on the planet. So for me, what I try to do is I try to tie everything that we do to some sort of bigger impact. Now, in the Google space, what I do is that for every Google review we help our clients get, we donate one day of education to a young woman in the Philippines to help pull herself and her family out of poverty. Because the research shows is that if you look after the women in in an economy, they generally look after the whole economy. You know, they, they look after the mother, the brother, the cousin, the sister, the brother, all of that sort of stuff, you know? But let's say one of those girls goes on to be the president of the Philippines. I would never know. So that's what we call like a processional effect. It's like you're doing something, you know, in in the ideal world that's of a positive nature, and it could have a second or third order benefit that you'll never see. Powerful. Yeah. Do you have a mentor? I got lots of them. I got lots of them, whether I'm catching up with Glenn or or Daniel or another gentleman by the name of David Dugan or Bruce Campbell. Uh, I've got lots of uh, people that I look up to and that inspire me and that I go to for counsel. So I think uh, everybody should have a coach or a mentor. 
Well, I mean, if you're wanting to achieve the results of what you want faster, ultimately you could probably get there on your own, but it'll best probably take you an extra five or 10 years. But if you want, if you want to save the brain damage uh, <laughs> and find out like, what did they do? How do they do it? And because like, even with the five-star business, if I had to set that up again, I'd do it faster and better and quicker just because I've already just done it once. And and I look at that like with a mentor. It's like I try to go to people that have achieved the result that I want to achieve and and get them to kind of basically shortcut the time, to buy back my time. Sage advice, sage advice. So we call this Resilient Entrepreneurs, this podcast. Uh, so we must ask you the question, although we have touched on it, uh, what does resilience mean to you? I think resilience is not about trying to avoid stress as much as we all try to on some level. I don't think it's about avoiding stress because stress is uh, everywhere. And stress can actually be a good thing if you harness it and use it in the right way. For me, resilience is about the internal dialogue that you have with yourself about what that stress means. So, you know, someone once said to me that your mind can be a scary place. You should never go there alone. And, and it's, it's, it's really about, well, what does that inner voice t- mean? You know, because sometimes it can be very unforgiving. Uh, oh, you stuff that one up. Oh, this or that or whatever. And it's like, well, being able to listen to that voice and realize that that voice isn't you. Uh, and how can you turn that and reframe that so that it becomes something that's positive and that you can show kindness and compassion to yourself through that inner voice? And, and just making sure that what you're seeing, you're not interpreting in a way that's harmful or negative. Yeah. That inner voice, that inner critic, she's always so mean. That's <laughs> so hard. But I do believe the more that we do get mentors, like you said, work on that clarity, work with others, help others, pay it forward. I love the, the procession that you talked about that. That's an amazing, I'm going to really hold on to that concept because I think that's a really cool thing to remember and to keep putting out in the world. It just all has such great impact. And I do think it will change this world for the better. And people like you, Carl, are the reason why entrepreneurs get out there and they make it and they strive and they become creative and do good things and you know create their own impacts. And just by talking to us and who knows who's out there listening, we might be creating lines of procession that go on for hopefully decades and generations um, to come. So thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation and I uh, look forward to uh, having more in the future. It has certainly been fun. Thanks for having me on. So thanks for joining us on Resilient Entrepreneurs. We're Laura and Vicky from Two for One. We love supporting entrepreneurs, especially with mindset, marketing, and motivation, which is why we've built an incredible community of business founders who meet weekly in the Level Up League. If you'd like to know more about it, look us up at 241branding.com.